بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته. Okay, let's see if you guys are still awake or if you are sleeping. This is what I normally do at the start of a presentation, but anyway, let's do it now. So I want everybody to put your hands out. Hands out to the front. Okay, now I want you to make your palms face outwards. Thumbs down. Everybody's palms outwards, thumbs down. Cross your right hand over to your left hand. Right, everybody's right hand over to the left hand. You got it? Okay, now do what I do. So you're sleeping. Okay, this session is about habits of highly successful Muslim youth. I want it to be as short as possible and as powerful as possible. For this session, I have chosen to look at the Ashabul Kahf, the youngsters, the youth of the cave. For those of you who are not familiar, in the Quran, Surah number 18, there's a surah called Al Kahf. This is a surah which is Sunnah to recite on a Friday for all Muslims. In the surah, there are various stories. There's four major stories or incidents in the surah. The one main story after which the surah is named is the story of the cave. Now, this presentation is going to be based on that story. And we're going to use their example to develop some habits for ourselves that we can implement in our lives. Why? Because if they were so important and good enough that Allah chose their story to be placed in the Qur'an, I mean, subhanAllah, then they really must have been successful youth. So we want to take whatever successful habits they had and implement it into our lives. So let's begin. In this presentation, we have, first and foremost, a video that we're going to play. This video is going to, inshaAllah, start a precedent because we all have role models correct each and every person whether you like it or not whether you admit it or not you have a role model somebody you dress like somebody you want to be like somebody you aspire to be like somebody you 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 cut your hair like you know we have role models they make up who we are the type of clothes we wear i'm looking at manchester united i'm looking at various type of clothing that people have here and this is not something that you just woke up one day and decided, well, okay, I'm going to be like these people. No. It's a matter of, in your life, you were exposed to various things and you decided to take on these role models. And how far do you go with these role models? Some of us go really far. Everybody here knows one direction. Okay? Now, I don't know one direction. I just come to your of one direction. In any case... What I heard was that there was a young guy in one direction named Zain Malik. Apparently he was a Muslim, or he is a Muslim, and apparently he left the group. And when that happened, I came to hear that so many youth around the world committed suicide. And others took blades, razor blades, and cut his name in their arms. Took pictures of that and put it on Facebook, and that was their way of expressing their love. Hussein Malik, and for One Direction. Now, I mean, don't get me wrong, when we were young, when we were your age, 
Um, we also had groups that we used to follow. We were like Backstreet Boys time and Westlife and InSync and yeah, we had those groups. But as far as I know, the craze wasn't as much as it is now. Now the following video is specifically addressed at how far you take your role models, right? After that, we're going to do a workshop. I'm going to ask you a list of questions and I'm going to I'm going to want you to answer those questions. Now again, like yesterday, we can either answer them by writing them down or by speaking to the person next to us or by just doing some introspection and really answering them for yourself. After that, we're going to discuss the answers that we have for those questions. Then we're going to look at the concept of being successful. Now yesterday we had a discussion of what this world portrays to be success and then we showed you what Islam says is success, what Allah says is successful. Today we're going to revise that a little bit. And then we're going to zone in on the story of the cave. I'm going to try to make that story as short as possible. What I want to do is spark some interest so that after this, you guys go out and actually read the story by yourselves and make it um, a reference point in your lives. Thereafter, I want to de derive lessons from this story, um, discussion and practical applications, but uh, that's the entire workshop. Thereafter, questions and answers, right? The Q&A is very important. I would like you guys to know that you can answer, that you can ask any questions whatsoever. This is an open panel Q&A. And your questions can be addressed to any of the speakers, okay? But not necessarily the person to whom you address the question will answer the question. Perhaps somebody else will answer. But you are allowed to address the question to whomsoever you want. I would advise you to start writing your questions down now. Take out a piece of page Right? Write down your questions, whether you want to put your name on there or not, it's irrelevant. But those questions that you have really wanted to ask, those burning questions, write them down, pass them to the front, and hopefully we'll get through all of them, inshallah. So let's start off with a video. Um, perhaps you can write your questions down while you're watching the video, but really take note of what this video is saying and um, see what it does, what it means to each and every one of you, inshallah. A love that would bring you to tears. I guess Michael Jackson's fans would understand. I mean, whenever he'd get up on stage and start singing like a bird, tears would flow. A whole sea of them. People would faint too. And if they had the chance to embrace him, they'd probably never want to let go. Football fans would understand this too. If they had the chance to meet their favourite player, they'd never let go either. It would mean the world to them just to touch them, hug them or kiss them. It's a strange kind of love that would make you do some strange things. Like try to take their shoes off of them, or get their name printed on your back, or even start cutting your hair like them. But from all these examples, there's still something missing. Like, would the subject they'd cry for, cry for them too? Most probably not. And if you'd ask their fans, they'd probably agree too. They'd be like, yeah, well, what makes me special? What makes me deserving? 
Well, what if there was someone who would cry for you? Not only that, but someone who would cry more for you, even though they were far more special and worthy of adoration than you or anyone else would ever be. The Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. A man who would literally stand up into the night until his skin would crack, just praying that we would be able to be with him when we pass away. A man who would cry at the thought of having followers who would believe in him without seeing him. He called them his brothers. A man who said that every prophet was granted a guaranteed dua and he saved his for us. A man who the companions would fight for his clothing, just at the thought of being able to be buried in it. A man who the companions would fight over the droplets of water that would fall from his skin. A man who emperors would say, I've seen the kings of Persia, Rome and Abyssinia, but I have not seen people who love their leader as the companions loved Muhammad, peace be upon him. This is the man who would cry for you. Is he not worthy of your tears too? Allahu Akbar. I'd like everybody to repeat with me. Allahumma salli wa sallim. Ala Nabiyina Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wa Ala Alihi Wa Sahbihi Wa Sallam We go to the ends of the world to be like people who don't even know us. People who don't clean themselves when they leave the toilet. They don't make a stinja. People who don't worship they don't live for higher values and we worship them. We have a Nabi, the best man who ever walked this planet. How much do we know about him? How much do we know about his family, his friends, his companions, his way of life? Do we honestly believe that his lifestyle was just for the old people? Guys with beards and turbans walking with thobes? Do you know, do you know who killed Abu Jahl in, in jihad? It wasn't 30 year olds, 40 year olds. It's two 15 year old boys. They said, Ya Rasulullah, we will bring you the head of Abu Jahl. And they went out. Two 15 year old boys. What are 15 year old boys capable of in our day and age? On the Prophet Alaihissalam's deathbed, he sent out an army. This army was the last army that he was going to send out before he passed on, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. This army was led not by Abu Bakr not by Umar In fact, they were in the army. Who was the leader of the army? Usamata bin Zaid. Do you know how old he was at the time? Seventeen years old. The leader of the army. What are 17 year olds aspiring to now? This is food for thought, right? 
serious food for thought. We're in the month of Ramadan. We don't want to be serious all the time. But sometimes we need to get serious and think about these things. So let's do some introspection and some serious thought. I'm going to ask you a few questions, inshallah. Answer them as quickly and as briefly as possible. And answer them truly. Don't answer what you think you should answer. Answer what you want to answer and what you would answer if nobody was around. Because nobody's going to read your answers. Number one, do I believe in Allah? And why? Do I believe in Allah? And why? Is it because my parents told me so? Is it because that's what I, brought, I was brought up with? Is it because that's what I always hear about? Do I really believe in Allah and why? Short as possible, right? Like a new short and you know what you mean by what you write. The answers are meant for you to think about, not for anybody else to read. These are personal, personal questions. Secondly, why did he create me? Why did Allah create me? And what does Allah expect from me? He created you. You know He created you. You know you didn't just come out of nowhere. So why did He create you? What does He expect from you? Third question. What is my current relationship with Allah? And am I satisfied with it? What is my current relationship with Allah and am I satisfied with it? At this question, I'd like to say something. This is a question that I used to sit with a lot and think about and contemplate. And I actually came up with an interesting way of figuring out the answer. What's my current relationship with Allah and am I satisfied with it? The answer I came up with was, my relationship with Allah or where I stand in the sight of Allah is directly dependent upon where Allah stands in my sight. It's as simple as that. In terms of priorities, how important am I to Allah depends on how important Allah is to me. What comes first in my life? What comes second in my life? What comes third in my life? Where does Allah fit? And that will give you an indication of where you fit in Allah's eyes. Knowing always that Allah will always and always be ready to accept and forgive and show mercy. Then, what can I do to improve my relationship with Allah? Now this is a big question, right? I mean, you can answer this question in various ways, but the first thing that comes to mind, the biggest and most drastic change that you can make right now, not tomorrow, not after Ramadan, right now, what can I do to improve my relationship with Allah? And then the last one of this list is, what's in it for me? In other words, if I do improve my relationship with Allah, what do I get out of the deal? That's an easy one, right? And I'm sure all of us can answer that one immediately. 
Okay. These are questions that are going to look weird. Who am I? Do you know who you are? Now, not in relation to your parents or in relation to your family or in relation to your friends or in relation to your skin color or in relation to the school that you go to or in relation to your sports that you play or the hobbies that you have. Who are you? What makes you, you? If you were to tell somebody in five minutes, this is who I am, what would you say? Now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created many things and among them he created angels, he created jinn and he created human beings. Angels, no free will. They do as Allah commanded them and they don't stray from his commands. Mankind, jinn kind, we have free will. Okay? And he created us, jinn kind and mankind. وَمَا خَلَقَتُ الْإِنسَ وَالْجِنَّ وَمَا خَلَقَتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ I have not created jinn kind, I have not created mankind except to be slaves of mine. Islam teaches us that human beings are prone to sinning. So why did Allah create us and then give us free will if He wants us to serve Him? Why would He allow us to sin? This is a question that I asked yesterday. And one of the sisters answered. And it's important that we revise this answer because it's extremely important that we make it part of our lives. Why would Allah create us in a way, give us a purpose, and then allow us to deviate from that purpose? The answer because Allah wants us to constantly turn back to Him. This is how it works. I walk on the path, I slip off. That's okay. We all slip off. You need to know that that's okay. It's expected of you. It's expected of you. But the difference between those whom Allah loves and those who don't deserve Allah's love is the difference between those who say, I've slipped, I want to come back. And those who say, I slipped, so what the heck, I'm just going to continue. I don't care. I'm just going to continue walking down the skew path. The straight path isn't for me any longer. Now the results, here is what we're supposed to know. What you've written is for you. This is how we should be thinking. Allah created me to be his vicegerent. Who knows what's a vicegerent? Anybody? Vicegerent? A vicegerent means a representative. Somebody that is going to represent you in a particular place. So I send you guys out as the vicegerent of the Istikama Institute. What does that mean? That means you're going to be the representatives of the Istikama Institute in society. We were created as Allah's vicegerent, meaning that we have the duty to represent Allah in this land. How? By obeying His commands and staying away from His prohibitions. We should know that. You have to compare that to what you wrote down. He made me imperfect. Why? 
so that I would always turn back to him. This is an important point. Why did he create me? He created me because he loves me. This is a very confusing point for many people. Why did Allah need to create us? He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. I mean, what's the point creating us? Then we do good deeds and bad deeds and then he judges us and then some goes to Jannah and some goes to Jahannam. What's the point? Why did he have this process in the, whole, you know, in the first place? When he is Allah, he is independent of all need. You know why? Because he loves you. He loves you. He gave you life because he loves you. And he wants you to have the privilege of living, to have the privilege of worshipping him, and to have the privilege of experiencing his rahmah, his jannah. And you have to know this. He sent us guidance, a textbook. When we go to the shop and you buy our cell phones, right? Again with the cell phone. And there's a function on the phone that we can't figure out. What do you do? Do you go to the corner shop? You ask the guy, listen here, there's a button here on the phone, there's a function, I can't figure it out. Do you go to the mall, to McDonald's, and ask the guy there at the counter, how do I figure this thing out? What do you do? Do you go to your teacher at school and ask you, look here, how do I figure this button out? Do you ask all your friends? Do you ask your mother and your father? Do you go and ask your neighbor? Who do you ask to figure out the function of this particular button that you have no idea what it does? You could go to all of these different places, but the clever ones would open up the manual, go to the page that speaks about that particular function, and check out what the thing does. Today, there's various ways of going to the manual. You can go to the manual via Google. You can go to the manual via the actual book. But you need to know that the most informative information that you're going to get about the product is from who? The manufacturer. We have a manufacturer. Allah. He gave us an instruction manual. It's called the Quran. The problem is... Imagine your Samsung came with a Chinese instruction manual. Chinese isn't actually a language, right? It's called Mandarin, okay? Or Cantonese. There's no such language as Chinese, either way. Imagine your instruction manual came in Mandarin. Would you be satisfied? Or would you go back and say, listen, this thing is in another language. How am I supposed to read this? And the guy tells you, look, this thing contains... All the answers that you need for your product, man. Just read the thing. Just read it. You know? Read it on a daily basis. It's got beneficial information. It's got really beneficial information. And then you say, okay, no problem. And then you go and you read. What would, what would be the, the benefit of that? Like, like seriously, you go home every day, you read, you read, you read. So you, you benefit in terms of wasting your time by reading. Okay, now... When it comes to the Qur'an, you're not wasting your time because you're reading Allah's word. It's in Arabic, so you benefit from the barakah. But was that the reason for sending the instruction manual? For the barakah? Or was it to understand the instructions? <coughs> I told the guys yesterday in our session in the masjid, and I'm telling everybody here today, one thing that changed my life from being just an ordinary teenager to having goals and dreams and aspirations that 
I would never have even imagined that made me able to stand on the stage today. That gave me the ability to be on TV or on radio or you know, read Arabic and teach and I'm teaching at the Dar Ulum and so on and so forth. The only thing that gave me all of these abilities in my life was one thing. And I'm giving you guys this as a, as a gift today. My gift to you. If there's anything that can change your life, it's learning to understand the book of Allah, the Quran. Wallahi, make your decision today that if this two-day workshop taught you anything, then it's that I can be like those guys on the stage. Because the only difference between me and them is the fact that they learned to understand the book of Allah. You don't have to take my word for it. Sister Karima can tell you what was it that changed her life. Zakaria can tell you what was it that changed his life. It's all the same. The stories are all the same. So, I want to show of hands now. Who here has a firm intention that you're going to do whatever it takes to pursue the understanding of the Quran. And when I say that, I mean when you are able, you know, not just by listening to somebody translate, but by actually opening up the Quran, you will be able to understand it by reading it yourself or by listening to somebody, somebody else recite the Quran. Not through translation, not through interpretation, not through the Friday khutbah, that you, as you hear the Quran, Allah will be speaking to you. Who here has a firm intention to actually go out and pursue that in their lives? Raise your hands. I make dua right now. May Allah Ta'ala accept. Say Ameen. Say Ameen. This is Ramadan. You guys just made an intention. We just said Ameen. I hope to see all of you in an Arabic course, inshallah. Right? We are, I run the Istikama Institute. If you guys can't do it on a full-time basis, now let me, let me just say this loud and clear. Study the Quran wherever, however, whenever you possibly can. The more you do it, the better. If you can do it full-time, do it full-time. If you can't do it full-time, do it part-time. But do it. Don't neglect it. Right? Don't neglect. Don't think, ah, you know, one day, you know, it's not for me right now. Whether you're making salah, whether you're not making salah, whether you're a good practicing Muslim in your mind or not, just pursue the study of the Quran. Could it possibly hurt you? No. I guarantee you it's going to make the biggest change in your life you've ever imagined. So I'm going to announce right now that we have the intention, the Istikama Institute, this is the first function that we ever have. And alhamdulillah, it's very successful, I must say. You guys have made it awesome. But we're launching a major project. In the new year, 2016, we'll be having a very, very professionally run Arabic and Quran studies part-time course. This course is going to take place on Saturday mornings from 8 a.m. till 12 p.m. And then from 12 p.m. till 1, there'll be Quran literacy. In other words, for those who can't recite Quran or want to revise the recitation of Quran, we're going to take you from Alif Bata all the way to understanding, I mean, all the way to reciting, reciting the Quran correctly, right? That's from 12 to 1. So that's part of the course, but not compulsory for everybody. So we're going to have conversational Arabic. We're going to have um, Nahu, Sarf, Quran, the, the surahs that we recite on a daily basis, the understanding of our salah, the understanding of our du'as, right? 
we're going to have uh, how to recite the Quran, but this is the type of course that I'm speaking about. Now, I'm not here to promote me, my course, or the Istiqama Institute. I'm here to promote the study of the Quran. So again, however, wherever, whenever, the more you do it, the better, inshallah. So we're all ready to take that on? We're all ready to take that on? Khair. Jazakumullah khairan. Next. He also sent us a guide with that book, Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. You can't just get a textbook without a teacher. The textbook is going to make you confused sometimes. The teacher is going to help you. So that's where the Prophet comes in. He wants us to succeed in this life and the next. So if you want to know how to practice the textbook, practice his life. Okay. Now, I'm going to stop my presentation here. I think I've said enough. I haven't gotten to the part of the story of the cave. That's fine, because in a few weeks' time, I'm not sure exactly when, we haven't set a date, but we will have another youth seminar. This youth seminar is going to be not two days, but once a week for a couple of weeks. It's going to, it's going to be called Muslim Youth Taking Control. Okay, I'm inviting all of you guys now. Now, this youth seminar is going to be different, in that we're not only going to be sitting in a hall and listening to lectures. We'll have one lecture, one session, workshop per week. But then we'll also have activities. What do I mean by that? We'll have hikes, okay? We'll have braais, okay? We'll have, like, martial arts, silat, if you can arrange that, for the guys and for the girls. We'll have, um, well, girls, I don't know what you guys do, sleepovers, cushion fights, things like that. <laughs> I'll ask my wife to sort that stuff out, right? But the point is, we're going to have sessions whereby we can actually interact with you guys. So we don't just want to be sitting here, standing on the stage and talking and talking and talking. We actually want to be with you on a more interactive basis. Okay? So this is coming up on Saturday mornings after the month of Ramadan, obviously. Now the, the lectures will probably take place in a venue such as this, but the activities will take place outside. Obviously we will go to different places and do different things. And we will obviously have it separate. So we're not going to have uh, boys and girls doing things together because that would be exactly against what we spoke about earlier on. But you're going to have some fun activities, inshallah ta'ala. So I'd like all of you to look forward to that. So I'm going to cut my presentation short here and keep the story of the cave for that session, inshallah. Right? Right now I'm going to open up the floor for the big question and answer session. Okay? So all of your questions and answers, I mean, all of your questions, <laughs> bring them to the front. Um, if somebody could collect the questions from the guys, somebody could collect the questions from the girls, bring them to the front. If I can ask Zakaria to join me in front here, and Karima to join me in front here, we can start with the questions and answer sessions, inshallah. Story of the cave was going to be exciting. Did you see the bat cave and the Superman cave? Something to look forward to, inshallah. Okay, listen up people, it's 20 minutes past 12, right? Officially, officially, this course ends at 12.30. We're going to give you at that time the option to leave at 12.30, as we have uh, promised. And we're also going to give you the option to stay 
and continue listening to the answers of the questions up until about 5 to 1, right? But that's your choice. That's not compulsory. So at uh, 12.30, we're going to give you the option to either leave and, you know, go home and enjoy yourselves, inshallah, or remain until about 5 to 1, where we're going to continue listening to the answers, okay? Okay, then of course you have evaluation forms. If anybody did not get an evaluation form, raise your hand. Okay, there's a few people that didn't get evaluation forms, but if you did, please fill in that form and tell us what you would like to see as, you know, as our new audience. What type of courses would you like to see? What type of programs would you like to have? What type of events would you like to be part of, okay? So that we can also be creative in our processes, inshallah ta'ala. I see Mulan Riyad is also here. You can just join in front, inshallah, for the answer session. Jazakallah khair. Yes, okay. The, the evaluation form is also to evaluate this course, right? So you can let us know what you thought of this course. If you thought we completely sucked, you can say that, okay? If you benefited, inshallah. You can say that. Um, it's, it's entirely up to you. So we can assess what uh, you thought of this course, if you benefit. I hope you guys did benefit, inshallah. Okay. Are these the questions from the lady? If you can just join up on stage, inshallah. Okay, so what I'll do is, I'm going to read out the question, if uh, I feel it's appropriate. And then I'm going to address the question to one of the... Um, Can you just can you just pass this question on to Malnari at the back, please? Okay. First question: If you fall asleep during your fast and you wake up after, I'm not sure what the next word is, and then it says, and you had a wet dream. Is your fast still valid? The answer is yes. Your fast is completely valid, right? All you have to do is perform a ghusl, perform a ghusl, wash yourself, and your fast is completely valid, right? And if you happen to be married, right, and you don't manage to perform a required ghusl, in other words, you're in a state of janaba, and the time of fajr comes, that fast is still valid. All you have to do is simply wash yourself and continue the fasting day. So yes, if during the day you fall asleep and you have a wet dream, your fast is still valid. Okay, that's question one. Okay. What did he say? Yeah, you can answer it. Okay, take that one. says, um, I think the issue needs to be addressed that the, the reason many youth are participating in uh, dating uh, is not because of FOMO or wanting to fit in, but rather because of the craving for companionship and the strong feelings of loneliness that comes with this life stage. Also because of the need for personal validation due to low self-esteem. And because the reality is not all of us are ready to get married or are unable to. How does one combat those feelings of loneliness? 
Well, the advice that Rasulullah Sallallahu gives is to fast. Firstly, don't busy yourself in all of those things that are going to entice you to date and to, to do the sin. If you know you're a person that craves that type of relationship or that companionship and that, lonely, uh, that, uh, uh, that intimacy that you get from dating, don't busy yourself with girls and girls don't busy yourself with guys. Stay away from it. You don't, uh, you don't decide that you want to stay away from something and then go to it. It doesn't make sense, does it? Or you realize that I really love eating lots of lollipops and then decide to fill your room with lollipops. It doesn't make any sense. So get rid of all of those temptations from your phone and from all of those things. Right? Be strong about it and be sensible about it. And the advice that Rasulullah gives is to fast. So fast, uh, not just in the month of Ramadan, other times as well. Right? It's, it's, it's understandable that youth crave this type of relationship. And we know that it's not always to, f- uh, to fit in. You want it because of the benefits that come with it. And you want that, rela- uh, that, uh, uh, <coughs> that comfort and that companionship. But if you're not by the means to do it Islamically, or you can't find any way to do it Islamically, right? then at least you must know that I'm not going to do it the wrong way. If I can't by any means get it in the, uh, the halal way, then I'm uh, not going to get it in the haram way. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions something about this in the Quran. Um, he says, وَالْيَسْتَعْفِفِ الَّذِينَ لَا يَجِدُونَ نِكَاحًا Those people who don't find nikah, meaning they don't have the ability to make nikah, let them still remain chaste. Right? Let them still remain chaste. And the advice that Rasulullah gives, fast, that fasting will be a shield for you. You might not understand how it works and whatever, how it breaks your shahwa, whatever, just fast. It's the advice of Rasulullah And I know it's hard, but if you do it, it will work. Okay. It will work. Sister Karima, if you can go next, inshallah. One second. Go ahead. Okay, we're gonna get the mic sorted out, inshallah. This uh, this this question has been asked a few times. Explain the milkah marriage, right? Basically, what happens is this: in a normal marriage, the guy proposes to the girl via the family. Okay. And um, once the proposal is accepted, they do the nikah, they then live together. A proper nikah then happens. This is, goes in the form of he provides nafaka, which is a roof over the head, clothing, you know, all the necessities, and she provides whatever physical needs to him, to each other. That is a normal nikah. In a milkah, what happens is things are not exactly ready for a full nikah, okay? The guy is still studying, the girl is still studying, perhaps they're on high school, okay? Because there's nothing wrong with that. Perhaps they're on high school, perhaps they're on university, and they want to focus on their studies. But at the same time, they find themselves attracted to this particular person, okay? So I find this person very attractive, and I want to have a relationship with this person, but I don't want to commit haram. So they go through the contract of nikah. You with me? The contract of nikah. In other words, 
exactly as a normal nikah would take place. He goes and he proposes to the family, but with the understanding that he will not be providing nafaka. You with me? The man will not be providing nafaka. He will not be providing a home. She will continue living with her parents. Okay? And he will not be providing any spending money or whatever the case may be. You know, if he, he can if he wants to, but contractually, he's not obliged to. And contractually, she is not obliged to fulfill his needs either. So basically, they living apart, they are living like they always did, but between them there's a contract of nikah. So what can they now do? They can now go out without any mahram, they can be together alone, they can hold hands, they can hug, they could kiss, they could do anything they want to, but they have a promise between the two of them and between the families that they will not consummate the marriage. Is that understood? So in other words, this is what some people refer to as halal dating. You with me? It's not actually dating because they're married. If they do, and this is a possibility and it actually happens, if they do consummate the marriage by accident or unintentionally go through the process, then they have not committed a sin. You with me? The only thing is now, because he's broken his promise, he now then has to take the responsibility of a husband. And she has to take the responsibility of a wife. So that would be a milka. So see, this is basically perfect for somebody who finds himself wanting to be chaste, not break the laws of Allah. But I'm in high school, I'm in university or college, and I'm not ready for a full nikah. I don't have the means, or she feels that she's not ready to move away from her parents, etc. But they still want to be in a relationship. Then this is basically uh, what they do. Yes? If they, have, if they have a child, it would be just like a normal couple having a child, a normal uh, married couple having a child. The full nikah would then take place, right? So he now has to assume the responsibilities of a father. He has to assume the responsibilities of a husband. He has to fulfill his obligations in terms of nafaka, and she has to fulfill her obligations. Do they, are they still obliged in terms of living together? Um, technically, yes. He has to provide a roof for her. But if they come to an agreement that, listen, I can't, I'm still, uh, um, I'm still in school, I'm still in college, and I, I literally can't provide a roof for uh, your daughter, is it okay that you continue providing a roof for her until I am settled? You know, if they, but this is all based on mutual agreement, right? But he's, he then becomes duty-bound because, of course, he broke his promise. So that's basically what the milkah is, inshallah. Okay, next question, Sister Karima. Is this still about milkah? Yes. <laughs> no, yes. It's a good question. They may, yes. They may do everything that a married couple may do, but they have a promise that they're not going to consummate the marriage. You with me? That's basically the answer. Yes, Karima? Still not working? Okay, this question is, if you have done wrong in the past and sincerely repented, you no longer do those sins, is it necessary to tell your spouse about it before or after or ever you have to tell them about it? And the answer is, um, no, you don't have to ever tell them about it. 
unless it's something that is going to affect the person. No, yeah, unless it's something that will affect you. Okay. Zakaria? Zakaria, you want to add? Was it? <laughs> I Tell him about your sins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, don't tell him about your sins. <laughs> <laughs> what good is that going to do? As long as you're completely out of it and there's no effects that remain of it, why do you want to tell them about your sins? That's finished, it's gone. You made over, yeah. it's gone. Yeah, The one who repents from a sin is like the one who's never committed that sin in the first place, right? But remember, if you do certain things and you have a certain type of lifestyle, People check your Facebook accounts these days. You go propose to a girl's family, that family can check your Facebook account and they can see what type of guy this is. So, you know, that's another thing you have to consider. Okay, next question, inshallah. Um, if you are interested in a girl, but her family and your family have a bad history, what do you do? Still go ask anyways. Still try your luck anyways. You can go both ways. Maybe she likes you so much, she convinced her father. And, well, you have to see if it's going to be tenable, if it's going to be... If you're still in that position where you can actually just think about things rationally. Uh, if, if you know that despite the fact that our families have bad history, we can have a successful marriage. We can have a good marriage and that feud or whatever is not going to affect us in our marriage then by all means, you can go ahead with it, consult people who are older, and then uh, you, you can try. There's nothing wrong with trying. Uh, perhaps the fact that you marry someone in that family, it brings the two families together, or brings them to a, a, a level of understanding. Yeah, it brings them to a bit of understanding, and just that bond that's created between those two people somehow does away with the, with the hatred that previously existed. So it's, 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 it's very possible. Yeah. Don't okay. go pull a... Romeo and Juliet, though. Yeah. Okay, um, if you are a Muslim but never made salah because of not caring or laziness, do you have to catch the salah up or do you have to just continue with the right path and ask for forgiveness? Now, um, the majority, the overwhelming majority of scholars have this position. Whether it's 10 years, 20 years, or 30 years, if you have not performed salah for your life, right? then you have the responsibility of making up for that salah. Let me explain how it works. Let's say Zachariah owes me 50,000 rand. You with me? And the date that he's supposed to pay me the 50,000 rand is at the end of August. But at the end of August, he doesn't have the money. Am I going to be happy or am I not going to be happy? I'm not going to be happy. Correct? Okay. But now Zachariah comes and he apologizes and he says, look, I'm really sorry, man. Please forgive me. And I say, you know what? I'll forgive you. No problem. Does that mean he no longer owes me the 50,000 rand? Of course not. Similarly, we owe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So how do you do this? This is quite difficult. Because if you didn't make salah for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, how do you make that up? This is a very, very good question. And I always recommend this to those people who find themselves in that situation. Your fard salah, the compulsory salahs, take preference over your sunnah salahs. You with me? So if you find it too difficult to make up all those fard salahs, then what you do is this. You make the intention that, Ya Allah, I'm going to make up for my missed salahs. Right? Then you start. And every time you make a fard salah, so today now, dhuhr, I'm going to make the fard of dhuhr. 
And if I find it too much to make the fard, plus the sunnahs, plus the extra fard, then you know what I do? I make the fard, I leave out the sunnahs, and I make an extra fard with the intention of making up the, the missed salahs. Does everybody understand that? And you do this every day, all the time, with the niyyah that you're making up your salahs. And if you die before you made it up, because you are working towards it, and because you had the niyyah, inshallah, Allah will accept it from you. That's basically the, the route that many ulama have uh, advised. But no, you can't just say, oh well, the past is the past, Allah will forgive me, I move on. No, you owe that to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, Karima? Um, I want to get married and do the right thing, but from my parents' side, it's a definite no, definite no, and the reasoning being that I need to finish my studies and get a job first. Even to milk a marriage, it is a definite no. What do you suggest? Okay, so um, we suggest that you speak, because it's your parents are unhappy and, or they have their own opinion, uh, we suggest that you uh, get a scholar involved. So maybe one of the scholars can come and speak to you to your parents, a Maulana or, or um, a sheikh that you know, can speak to your parents, inshallah. Okay, Zakaria? Um, what if marriage leads to families breaking apart and dividing them? How can we help them if it is affecting most of the family and their relations? Um, it depends, obviously, in any situation like this has to be looked on, on its uh, like on its own what you should do is get the get the marriage to go or the, the married couple to go for counseling you know this is something where people need to go for counseling they need to see someone who can uh, help them through their specific problems see why it's causing uh, the friction why other people are disliking what's happening or, or why they the relationships are breaking up what they should do is also discuss things in the family if at the end of the day it's like this marriage is just creating problems upon problems and it becomes hard for the married couple and for everyone. Islam has the option of divorce. Right? It, like I said, it is halal. You don't want to be in a marriage that, that causes misery in every part of your life. Right? So it's halal to get divorced. And sometimes the, the couple that got divorced, they are able to find other spouses and lead happy lives. This family is happy, that family is happy, and, and everyone can be happy in their new life. But obviously, that's not the first thing you want to go to. Discuss things, go for counseling, suggest to them that they go for counseling. If you yourself can't suggest it, get someone who's, who has everyone's well-being at heart and then get that person to suggest you know, counseling or just discussing as a family issues. So, uh, yeah, that's the best. You know, go for counseling and discuss issues. Okay, me. Is it permissible to wear fashionable clothes on condition that it is not revealing? As I was a little confused as to whether it is only acceptable to wear salah tops. Okay. Um, the answer is, this is a misconception. No, you don't have to only wear salah tops. You can wear fashionable clothing as long as it... I wouldn't say... The, the words is not as long as it's not revealing. Revealing means that skin is not exposed. Sometimes your skin can be completely covered, but that's still not permissible. So the, the actual condition is, as long as it fulfills the conditions of suitable, moderate clothing for Muslim women. So, 
It's not just that the skin must be covered, it's that it mustn't show any shape or curvature of the, pers uh, of the person's body, right? But no, you don't just have to wear black solar tops all the time, right? However, that said, there will be a group of scholars, a group of people, sisters even, who feel that you do actually have to only wear solar tops. But this is a level beyond what is the basic requirement, right? So you get the basic requirement and then you get those who go beyond that and they become a bit strict. They're called conservative. So you have to respect that some people feel that a level beyond the basic requirement is necessary. However, this requires mutual respect. Those who go beyond the basic requirement need to respect those who are fulfilling the bare minimum. And similarly, those who are fulfilling the bare minimum need to respect those who go beyond the basic requirement. So for example, if a girl goes into niqab, understand that niqab is not cultural, as some people may think. Niqab is a very, very important part of the deen of Islam. The Prophet's wives, it was compulsory for them to wear niqab. As for the rest of the ummah, the scholars have differed. This is a big issue. There's major differences of opinion with regards to niqab. Some scholars say it is compulsory. Other scholars say that it is sunnah. No scholar says that it's cultural. I'll repeat. Some says compulsory. Some says sunnah. No one says cultural. So respect those who wear it. Those who wear it, respect those who don't. This is personal decision based on the fiqh that you follow. The Shafi'i Madhab, which is the Madhab that the majority of us follow here in the Cape, has two opinions, two relied upon opinions with regards to this. The one is that it's compulsory, and the other one that it isn't. It's the only one of the four Madhabs that actually has an opinion that it's compulsory. But there's two. So most of us follow the one that says that it isn't. The point being... Don't fall into the trap of those who say, yes, it's some invention that came, you know, long before Islam and so on and so forth. Many things came long before Islam. That doesn't mean that it's not part of Islam. That's a stupid argument. Some people say, you know, niqab was there before Islam, so how can it be part of Islam? Beard was there before Islam, how can it be part of Islam? Clothing was there before Islam, how can it be part of Islam? Marriage was there before Islam, how can it be part of Islam? These are stupid arguments, Right? So don't fall into the trap of those who come with logical arguments. This is more a matter of uh, personal issues and personal gripes that people have with the niqab. But is it part of Islam? Most certainly, yes, it is. Right? It's just a matter, matter of mutual respect, inshallah. Um, if, you're still, if you are still young, 15, 16, 17, uh, and you want to get engaged, is it still haram to hold hands, hug and kiss? Uh, yes, it's still haram because you you only engaged, and only once you get married, then it becomes halal, inshallah. It's worth the wait. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Actually, I actually want to add to that. Being engaged means nothing. There's no difference between being engaged and being completely single. There's no difference whatsoever. The only time there's a difference is when the man says qabil tunika hahali nafsi bidarik. So there's absolutely no difference. This is a misconception, right? Uh, if you find yourself sinking into a haram relationship and you know the person okay. you're in a relationship with is very persuasive and you know that it would break him if you left. Persuasive, yeah? What could you do? You know you're not ready for marriage but you can't stay in the friendship. If he breaks, that's his problem. 
the thing is, the thing is, if you're going to break up in, in any kind of a relationship where there's emotions going both ways, right? And you're in a relationship with thing, where there's feelings going both ways, you are going to feel a little bit hurt at the beginning, right? No matter what, you are going to feel a little bit hurt. You're going to feel like you missed the person, etc. But if your motivation is that you're doing it for Allah's sake, then just do it. All that it takes is for you to t- explain to the person nicely, this is not right, this is not halal. I want to better my relationship with Allah, and so this relationship needs to stop here. It's got nothing to do with you. That's like that old line. It's got nothing to do with you. It's just between me and Allah. I don't want to be punished, and I don't want you be to be punished because of me as well. So the relationship ends here. Please don't respond to this message. Jazakumullah khair. And then you block them. And then you block them. Yeah, and then you block them and you delete the number and make sure you don't have it written down. Finished. If you want to marry me, come ask my daddy. Okay. We, we only have a few minutes left, so we're going to have to get through this as quickly as possible, right? Um, I'm going to do this one first. Riba is haram, and I know that this applies to the person paying and receiving it, but what if I'm studying accounting and I have to calculate the interest for a company or business. It is not my money, nor do I come into any physical contact with the money. Is this still considered as haram to calculate it? Very easy answer. The Prophet said, La'anallahu akilur riba. Allah curses. Now that means Allah removes from, the, from His mercy the person who consumes riba, the person who gives riba, the person who witnesses the contract, and the person who writes the contract down. So yes, so if you're studying accounting, then what you have to do is, when you go job hunting, you just have to really be careful as to the job that you are hunting for. One second. If you are already in a job where you are doing that, then the ulama are not going to tell you, drop your job right there and quit. No. Find another job quickly. And as soon as you do, then you leave that job. Okay. Uh, look, uh, as, far as, I, as far as I know, what, what Zakaria is mentioning is that this person is simply doing the calculations of the company. Now, this particular instance, I don't know how accounting works and what exactly goes into it, right? But the point is this. Um, I would say if you're really going to go into this, come and ask somebody personally and speak about the details so we can give you a better answer. However, when it comes to riba, it's the only thing in the entire Quran that Allah says He wages war against people who don't abstain from it. So anything to do with riba, we go very, very precautionary. You understand? So the further away you can be from it, the better. If, however, I am misunderstanding the question, right, then I would advise you to come to me or any other scholar personally and explain exactly what it is that you are doing in order to know whether it is acceptable or not, inshallah. Okay? Um, is our time up, uh, Shamil? We Shamil? It's now quarter to, I think we can take, we've got how many questions left? I don't, I don't Karima? Know. No more questions. I have two more. I'll answer this very quickly. Okay, this is the one about Islam, us and them. It says, in religion or Islam, in this case, there's an us and there's a them. My question is, when we die, what happens to the them? Um, who were good in their lives. Classic example, Mother Teresa, right? 
do they go to Jahannam because they do not believe in Allah as compared to believing in, for example, Jesus and God? Now, this is what you have to understand. All people who believed in the current prophet of their time and everything that he came with will all go to Jannah. All people who believed in the current prophet of their time will all go to Jannah. So everybody in Abi Musa's time who believed in him will go to Jannah. Everybody in Abi Isa's time who believed in him will go to Jannah. Everybody in Abi Muhammad's time who believed in him as he's supposed to and didn't believe in anything else will go to Jannah. As for who will go to Jahannam, this is what I have to say. Allah says that the religion by Allah is only Islam. And as for the individuals and what will happen to them on the day of judgment, only Allah knows. Full stop. That's it. I can only tell you what I know from the Quran, and that is that Allah says the religion, the only religion that's acceptable to Him is Islam. As for what will happen to each individual when they die, how can I tell you whether they're going to Jannah or not? I don't know whether I'm going to Jannah or Jahannam or not. Right? So I can't give you a judgment on the next person. However, what I can say, anybody who has beliefs that go contrary to the, to the core beliefs of the Quran, in other words, the core beliefs of what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has spoken about in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala stated that He will not be pleased with them and He will not allow them into Jannah. As for Allah's decision on the day of judgment and what He does, we don't know, we can't say. So if somebody comes to you and asks you, will Christians go to Jahannam? You say, how am I supposed to know? I don't even know if I'm going to Jahannam, right? That's the answer, okay? And I would leave it at that. As we're going into further theological issues, don't go there. Five minutes. We have one more question, so that's fine. Um, I hope I answered that question sufficiently. This is a, a touchy question, because I mean, family and friends and all of those type of things but uh, the Prophet's own uncle wasn't Muslim. He didn't die as a Muslim. And the Prophet said that his uncle was going to be in the fire of Jahannam. Now the thing is this, um, if I can, because we have five minutes left, give you an example. A father goes away and he has ten kids and he tells the ten kids, listen here, all I want you to do is accept me as your father. Don't ever reject me as your father. Right? Other than that, be good. Don't be bad. Okay? Love you. Bye. And then he leaves. When he comes back, nine of the kids, right? Okay. All of them, all of them, all of them, all of them were good. They painted the house. They washed the cars. They, they just, they were extra good. They didn't do anything wrong either. But one of the, of the ten kids says, I don't accept you as my father. I accept another man as my father. So he was good, wasn't he? He was good just like the rest of the nine. But he rejected him as the father. And that is the one thing that was the most important to the father. What do you think? That father is going to be happy with that child? You think that father is going to disown that child? Now, Allah is the best of examples. But it's a similar thing. The main command that Allah gives us is, believe in me. Don't ascribe any partners with me. La ilaha illallah. So if you think you can be how good if you go against the one thing that he said you mustn't go against, what do you think the outcome is going to be? Right? But we don't know. Only Allah knows. The last question is, I was asked by a non-Muslim friend, why is it permissible for men to marry more than one wife? I believe I did give her an acceptable, correct answer. However, she then asked me why women could not do the same. 
and I was not sure how to answer that question, so I would like to pose the question to you. My answer is because Allah didn't allow them to in the Quran. That's it. <laughs> Why do we make Maghrib Salah? Three rakat? Because Allah said we must. That's it. Why do we not eat? Why do we not drink alcohol? Because Allah said we must. It's not because it's intoxicant. It's because Allah said we mustn't. Um, there's, when it comes to law, it's sami'na wa ata'ana. We do what Allah says. We don't do what Allah says. It's as simple as that. Um, if you want to start going to reasoning and logic and wisdom, I'll answer you this. What do Western people regard women who have many sexual partners as? What do they call them? Well, you said it, right? Very bad things. So, similarly, um, even the West looks at it as a woman with many sexual partners as something being disgusting. So, how is that different from what uh, Islam says? But at the end of the day, why is this and why is that and why must we do this and why mustn't we do that? There's never a logical answer. The logical answers are wisdoms, not answers. Why do we not eat pork? Is it because of the tapeworm? No. It's because Allah said it's haram. That's why. So this is how Islam works. And we have to get that mindset. It's not about what makes sense to me. It's what about what my Allah says to me. Um, time's up, but I'll allow it, inshallah. Well, the answer is that if he does get married to more than one woman just because he's allowed to, as long as he can do justice. If he doesn't do justice, he'll be punished. Um, the Prophet ﷺ got more, married to more than one wife, but that's different circumstances. Um, you see, Islam didn't come to make poly, polygyny institutionalized. It was already institutionalized. Islam came to limit polygyny. You with me? Before Islam, men could marry as many women as they wanted to. The Bible and the Torah doesn't give a limit to how many women men can marry. Only the Quran does. And the Quran doesn't say men should marry more than one wife. The Quran says men should marry one. Only those men who could and can within themselves be just towards more than one wife are allowed to marry more than one wife. And that's basically the answer. I know it's something that ladies don't really like, but, you know, we accept the, the Quran wholeheartedly. We can't accept some of the book and then reject other parts of the book. Allah knows best. Time is up. Jazakumullah khairan. You guys were great.